0: Good evening, friends. It's good to see you. Uh, as you as you may know, I'm relatively new to this place. I, I kind of did a little bit of things over the course of 2023, and we've upped the ante on, on how much I do now, but I'm relatively new to Covenant, but I'm excited about it. So I'm walking down the street the other day, and I'm talking to this woman, and, and she says, uh, you, you go to that church? And I, I said, yeah. And she said, tell me about that church. And I, I said, it's a, it's a place of joy and a place of community and a place, it, people are just upbeat. And she said, really, what have you been preaching and teaching on lately? <laughs> and I said, well, we, we started with Caiaphas and how he did bad things in secret. And this week we get to get Judas and betrayal. And she broke out in... I've got the joy, 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 joy down. It's a, uh, it's Lent, folks. It's Lent, a time of repentance, a time in which we're accessing the part of the book, the part of the Bible that covers the last week of Jesus' life and takes some character that Jesus encountered in that last week, each of our weeks, and looks deeply in order to find our access to God, really, to to repentance, to being able to have our lives examined through Scripture and come away knowing that the God who loves us fully is ready to hear our repentance, hear, hear our turning around. That's what repentance is, a changing of mind or a turning around. And so each of these weeks we're doing that, and tonight, it is Judas, so everybody give a shout of yay for Judas. Yay! OK. Um, it's a, I think it's, it's a good likeness. Um, the communications people are just awesome. This, the series is, as all series seem to be, very well sort of uh, arted up. And, and oops, yeah, here we go. Yeah, I need that. Thanks, Kevin. I got away without my little clicker guy. Thank you. Um, so, anybody know who these guys are? The one on the left will be less recognizable to you because he isn't quite a household name. Yeah, traitor and traitor, right? Robert Hansen, anybody know what his traitorship was? Russian spy, FBI agent who snuck under the radar to spy for the Russian for the Soviets for 15 or 20 years. And Get away with it, and, and it caused reform in the, in the Federal Bureau of Investigation because they realized what kind of holes they had, but he became infamous as a traitor to the cause, as a betrayer of his role, of his nation. Right? Benedict Arnold, better known. How many of you named your kids after him? Now, Benedict Cumberbatch is one of my faves. But he's English. Um, Benedict Arnold, of course, uh, passed over for some promotions he thought thought he should have gotten during the Revolutionary War, uh, commissioned by George Washington to guard and and kind of man and troop West Point, and was planning to hand West Point over when his plot was uh, revealed and he became symbolic of betrayal, of traitorship, treachery. And so we have faces we attach to it, but maybe the most famous besides Judas is Julius Caesar, right? Not Caesar the betrayer, but who's the betrayer? Brutus, Brutus, whom Dante puts in the same circle of hell as Judas. And what's the difference between these two guys And this guy, what's the the treachery of these two guys? Who are they they betraying? They betray their country, country. large group. Caesar's friend Brutus, they were very close at a time, started politically not to like Caesar's challenge to the Roman Republic. He he saw it going, he saw Caesar power grabbing, Julius Caesar power grabbing, and so started to oppose him politically, fought with Pompey in the Civil War, and uh, Caesar won, but Caesar gave him, a, a kind of pardoned him. Right? So Caesar has been good to him politically, and they were longtime friends, but of course, et tu brute, um, you're the one who's doing this, you're the one who's stabbing me, by the way, Ides of March, 17 days away. There, you've still got 16 shopping days till the Ides of March. Um, famous, famous treachery, famous betrayal, and as some of you have shouted out, it's a personal betrayal. Do you see that difference? There's a betrayal of a cause or a nation, but when it's a betrayal of a friend, of a close person, trusted person, it becomes a different thing, and so Caesar is more synonymous with betrayal than either of those first two offenders. Probably second to Judas. Tonight, we're going to look through the story of Judas in Matthew briefly because it was, uh, Jill preached beautifully of it on Sunday. Uh, If you haven't heard her sermon, as we need you to every week, please go back and and uh, you'll, get a, you'll get a story about Punt Bama Punt. Um, you'll get a story about a great Auburn victory over Alabama, which I think UT people and others like Alabama losing, um, right? You'll also get a deep, thoroughgoing uh, treatment or, or visit to what betrayal is and how Judas embodies it. It's a, it's a wonderful sermon, so go back and get it if you haven't gotten it yet. Um, we are going to go to Matthew where she was and spend kind of our first third or maybe even up near a half of our time going back through that and having you break out once or twice and talk to your table folks about it. Then we're going to go to the, how Judas gets treated in the other gospels. So in Mark and in Luke and in John. And there are some fascinating things about the way that Judas is presented a little differently across the Gospels. And we're gonna go with the, uh, with the sort of general rule that we are lucky to have four Gospels. We're blessed to have four Gospels because we get different inroads to what happened and who the people were in the story. So when we compare, it's not to say, well, this is different. That's, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't square their facts. We compare in order to see how was Judas being processed in one group relative to the other, and what that might mean for how we we get the complex character and the event. All right, so we're gonna start with Matthew. Before we do it, this is a definition of betrayal from the National Institutes of Health. So, a psychiatric definition of betrayal, the sense of being harmed by the intentional actions or omissions of a trusted person. Notice person. The most common forms of betrayal are harmful disclosures of confidential info, disloyalty, infidelity, dishonesty. They can be traumatic and cause considerable distress. The reason I put this up before we go to Matthew is that it's not like you and I are objective readers who never experience what we're reading about. If I had you raise your hands, which I'm not going to do, how many of you have been betrayed by someone dear to you or someone you trusted I would imagine if we're honest, every hand would go up at some point in our lives. So it's not like we're looking as spectators as, at Judas and saying, that's interesting. We have skin in this game because our lives have included both times when we've been betrayed. And I would bet if I ask you to raise your hands, have you ever betrayed a friend who trusted you? We probably at some point all have, even if it was all in middle school. Right? <laughs> And so we need to go into this with more than just a sort of academic interest in how these texts work, with more than just a sort of uh, arm's length approach. Some of the questions we ask around the table will have to do with how this comes home in our lives. And that's not easy to talk about all the time. So you'll need to be the assessor of your own level of sharing but again, as I said last week, a, a community of Christians aspires to be a community of trust. It aspires to be a place where we can trust one another with our dearest things, with our dearest thoughts, with our, with our hardest things. You need to assess for yourselves how that sharing level goes for you at this point in your relationship to the community. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so we're going to beam in and out of the personal and over to the story and kind of make that a thread that goes back and forth. So this is a brief trip through Matthew, again, because we had it on Sunday, but I'll add to some of it, I've, I've sort of taken little snippets, but I'll add to some of it uh, things that I think Jill uh, accented or things that I think the text helps us with. Here's the event that happens just before the Judas, uh, before the plot against G, against Jesus and Judas's role. Uh, can you make it out from the from the image on the on the painting? What's happening here? I'll describe it, but I'm going to give you a second to try to figure out what's going on in this painting. You've got Jesus on the on the settee, and you've got this woman who's head is down at his feet. Anybody recognizing the episode? She's anointing his feet with her hair and with a fine oil, with a fine ointment. But when the disciples saw this, they were angry and said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. Now, would that have aligned with Jesus's general mission? Sure, so they're not telling Jesus something he doesn't know and hasn't told them before. But I haven't put the slide up for what he says next because it's kind, of a, it's kind of a highly misinterpreted line, but what does Jesus say in response? This is double bonus points. The poor you will always have with you. But I'm not here forever, basically. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the scene. The poor you always have. He blesses her action. And the disciples are a little livid about it. Judas was one of these disciples. And we're gonna get in another gospel, as we get to the second half of our time, we're gonna get in another gospel, how that impacted Judas, how he responded. Here he's just grouped with the other disciples. But I put this up before we hear anything specific about Judas, because it may be in the background as he makes his assessment of what he's gonna do relative to Jesus. All right, so that much so far, the Jesus blessed using this expensive oil on an anointing of his his feet. Well then, of course, they eventually sit down to the Passover meal. It comes pretty soon after that scene that I just uh, showed you. While they were eating, Jesus said, "'Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Judas, who betrayed him, said, "'Surely not I, Rabbi?' Jesus replied, "'You have said so.'" In the dot, 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 in the ellipsis here, Jesus says something that I'd like you to sit with around your tables for a second. In the dot, 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 Jesus says, "'For the Son of Man goes as he must, "'but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed, essentially. For that one, it would be better if he had never been born. That's pretty strong language. I want you to absorb that a little around your table. I'll give you three or four minutes to just talk about that. It's not on the screen. It's just in our heads together. Talk about that line that Jesus speaks and the level of gravity that he's placing on Judas's role in this drama of trial and crucifixion that we, that we will get to in Holy Week. So talk to people at your table about this one line, but woe to that one through whom it comes. It would be better for that one if he'd never been born. All right, I said it was going to be a cheery night. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, folks, let's gather back out. I know every, every conversation could go a long time. But I want you to consider. I, I'm. It's always really fun to hear you talking well to one another, and and every table was buzzing differently. Um, it struck me this week that the, in the book of Job. Uh, the charge is, you know, the bet is that he'll never curse God, but he does curse the day he was born. Remember, he curses the day he was born, and that feels like there's an echo in Jesus's line here. It would be better for him that he had never been born. Now, Job didn't do anything uh, that caused his suffering. He didn't didn't, uh, step astray in order to do that. Some have thought that by saying this, Jesus is saying, I wouldn't want your role in this drama. I wouldn't want your part in this drama, which doesn't entirely exonerate Judas, but looks at it from a different perspective. I wouldn't, whoever gets this part drew the short straw is one read of this. On the other hand, we're gonna see as we go through that in especially others of the Gospels, it is entirely placed in the choice of Judas and his uh, nefarious choice. So one of the things to sit with is, how culpable is Judas? Is he just pure D bad? Or what motivations might make him want to make this move? How much did he have a choice in it? And and what would have motivated when he did make that choice? So, So the choice gets made, and the next scene is the kiss. The betrayer had given them a sign, Judas had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him. So you've got this... Friendship kiss that was a, a part of ancient, uh, ancient culture in the Near East and also French culture twice. Right? At once he came up to Jesus and said, "'Greetings, Rabbi,' and kissed him. Jesus said to him, "'Friend, do what you are here to do.'" Friend, isn't that strange? Jill's line at the end of her sermon, I'm not gonna divulge now, <laughs> but there will be a spoiler alert because I'm gonna get back to it later because she nails this at the end of her sermon in just a simple way. But hold that for a second. When Jesus chooses how he's going to speak to Judas, he uses the word friend. Now, I, I just recently got a, a, uh, an email from somebody who gets my daily devotional thing, and. And they said, you call us friends a lot. I think you're being presumptuous. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that's here nor there. Um, Then there comes, after this, Jesus goes to his trial, and he is condemned by the high priest in the Sanhedrin after the trial before them. And... When Judas, his betrayer, this is later in the chapter in 47 to 49, when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I want you to go around your tables and ask about this word, innocent, ask about about Judas's change of mind. That's, That's what... Uh, repenting is, change of mind, a turning around. This is a track shift for him, a switch. So talk together about what that step in this drama might have been precipitated by. What caused Judas to turn from the guy who gets some shekels for turning Jesus over to be tried and, and all, the, all that will come with it? What would have changed his mind about that? It's partly in the text, but it's partly in our sort of psychological understanding of this. So uh, tables, again, four, five minutes. Okay, folks. Um, that was four minutes. People have, people have run a mile in less time than you just spent talking. Um, but I didn't hear as much buzz this time. Did the question baffle you a bit? Did were you? Was this a harder one to talk about? An answer? Was it? Uh, nod your head if it was harder. Yeah. It's a it's a, it's an, uh, an abrupt move on Judas's part. We we look at him as having sort of gone out of his way to go to the uh, chief priest and the and the Jewish leaders and sign on for the role of betrayer. Sign on for it. Kind of enthusiastically, it seemed. And now in the moment when what happens? He changes his mind. He sees that Jesus is being condemned. Didn't he he think that would happen? Was he naive? Did he think, okay, I'll send him over to trial, they'll give him a, a quick run at it, and then he'll be exonerated, and we've got more money for the treasury. I don't know, but it is abrupt, isn't it? And he repents. What is this series in Lent about? Repentance. But look what happens next. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, but the Sanhedrin said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, if you feel bad, that's your business. Buyer's remorse or whatever. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So as we discovered on Sunday, this ends in suicide for Judas, and that's his response to not being able to take it back. That's his response to not being able to take it back, that repentance, changing his mind, didn't change Jesus' circumstances. And apparently he couldn't live with that these, these uh, artistic renderings are from James Tissot, T-I-S-S-O-T, a French artist, and he does the whole sequence of Judas. He was fascinated by Judas and, and painted them in their very um, sensitive uh, sequence of, of paintings. So that's, that's where Matthew takes us with Judas. From his initial deal with the Jewish leaders, that comes right after what the disciples see as a waste of money, through to the meal where, where Jesus identifies him, uh, to the kiss that identifies Jesus, onto his attempt to take back what he's done, and finally to his demise, which in Roman Catholic theology, of course, suicide is a mortal sin, that is not um, that is not as neatly defined in most Protestant traditions, but suicide is not a thing that a lot of Christian history would sign on for saying that's, that's, a, that's a great thing to do. It, it's not even a thing that would be allowable within the realm of a proper moral response. So where do we put Judas's repentance of something to hang with a little bit? He changed his mind. I didn't mean that as a, <laughs> I didn't mean that as a pun. That's something to sit with a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, the, um, where do we put Judas's repentance, given that ultimately it doesn't satisfy in a way that reconnects him with God or with, with Jesus? It's a, it's a grave sort of consideration. So just before we break out and talk about a couple of, of passages from Mark and Luke and John, I want to I context the way, Jesus, Jesus, the way Judas and his episodes here get treated within the progress of early Christianity. The Gospel of Mark, by most scholars, is held to be, have been written about 65 to 68 A.D., So three three decades and a bit after Jesus walked and talked and and then had Holy Week and died and rose. So quite a bit afterward, written on the basis of of things that had been handed down or spoken down, Mark sits down and puts together what we know as the first gospel that was written. Then Matthew and Luke use Mark considerably they, they both have Mark as a source and they use him differently, but they use him extensively. And then John comes along and he doesn't have a whole lot of overlap with either one, but, but either of the, uh, the first three, but we usually date Matthew and Luke and John somewhere in the 75 to 95 range in the first century. 75 to 95 AD. So after Mark, because they use him, but we don't know how long after, The reason it gets after 70 is because they show signs of kind of knowing that the temple has already been destroyed in Jerusalem and that happened in 70, 67 to 70, all right? All of this is not just to be dry dry as dust theory about Bible, It's it's to give an entry to the fact that each of the communities that received a gospel was going through different things. They were all in different contexts and somebody served them by writing a gospel and reading it out in a room, or having somebody read it out in a room to a bunch of people who were waiting to hear the story of Jesus. And so, I wanna fast forward about 30 years beyond when at least Matthew and Luke and John seem to have been written. This letter from Pliny to Trajan was very, is very famous because it's our earliest access to what the Christians are up to and what they're facing that's not in the scripture. In other words, our earliest non-Christian access to what they were doing. And it's a longer letter, but here Pliny is asking Trajan, the emperor of Rome. Pliny's a regional governor in present-day Turkey. He's asking the emperor in Rome, who's a friend of his, Trajan, what am I supposed to do with these Christians? I have never been told how to persecute them. Interesting, right? He's getting advice for how to make Christians' lives hard from the emperor himself or at least seeking that advice. In one part of that letter, he says, here's what I've done so far. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. In the course of this letter, he then says, I also use people who renounce their faith, to point out others who are part of the Christian movement. Now, in our Holy Week story, Peter, who we're gonna to get to in a couple weeks, Peter denies Jesus. We'll hear about that a lot in a couple weeks. Judas betrays Jesus. Tell me the difference between those two acts if you're a Christian under Pliny, If somebody in your group is pressured by Pliny's soldiers to sort of renounce Christianity, and they do renounce Christianity, in other words, they deny Jesus, what's going to be the result for you, the other Christian, who wants to stay Christian? Is that a threat? If your neighbor says, "Uh, I am one of them, but I'm not going to be one of them anymore, and then walks off, um, has it hurt you? No, that's just denial. Now, you may miss him as a brother or sister, you may miss that person as a brother or sister, but you haven't been turned in. What about betrayal? Do you see how different that would be in the context of persecution? A betrayer is a danger, a denier is a weakling. Do you see that? So as we read these gospel stories, these are the kinds of situations that the authors and the audiences are in. They are under some kinds of persecution, and the story of Peter comes and the story of Judas comes. Which one is more threatening to them? The story of Judas. The story of the betrayer. So as we see how the narrators or how the, how the authors have framed Judas in these, in these other books, let's remember that he is being remembered in light of their circumstances. And they may be getting persecuted and betrayers may actually be in their midst. So with that in mind, let's read on the sheets on your table. Let's read a couple of these, and then I'm going to turn a couple of them over to you to just talk about. Notice Mark's version, and I don't have, this isn't an exhaustive list, because there's a lot of overlap between the the ways, the different, You know, there's a lot of redundancy if you look across, but these are ones to just instantiate how each one does, or give an example of how each one treats Judas. Mark. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him uh, to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. That's Mark. Look at the difference in Luke. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests, officers of the temple. Temple police, about how he might betray him to them, they were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began to look for an opportunity to betray him when no crowd was present. Do you see the differences between the two? Luke used Mark's account. We know that because he did it a lot in his book. Mark was a source for Luke. It wasn't plagiarism. It was a help for him to tell his story. But notice where he has changed things here. Notice where his narrator has added things that help his reader understand what's going on. How does he portray the decision that Judas makes to go and turn Jesus in? What causes that? Satan Satan enters him. So the narrator gives us extra information that's not gonna come out in the dialogue, that there was an evil spirit or a thing happened in him that was a temptation, and that sent him off to turn Jesus over. It's, it's a little difference, but it's kind of a big difference, isn't it? For Mark, it's just, he decided to do this. <laughs> Can anybody fetch me a water? Sorry. <laughs> um. Do you remember how in Matthew, a few minutes ago, what did Jesus say when when Judas came up to give him a kiss um, and show his his, uh, arresters who he was? He said, friend, do quickly what you must do. Here in Luke, while Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you're betraying the Son of Man? In Matthew, it was, friend, do quickly what you must do. Here it's, are you kidding me? Are you betraying me with a kiss? Do you see the difference in tone there? So so this isn't to say, these guys are just making this stuff up. This is to say that the, the news about what happened in Jesus's life landed in contexts in which the people who wrote them down into, into Gospels were living people, they were in these contexts, and they understood what was being passed on to them, and they put it in their Gospel, but the context made them a little different from one another and gave us inroads into sort of the, the motive set, the complexity of this, of this event. Let's read John. And to do this, what I'd like you to do is read the bottom two. So the, the, the John section starts uh, three quarters of the way and down the page. And some of you have, have this and others of you don't. If you need one and there aren't enough at your table, let me know and I'll come hand them out. But I want somebody at your table to read out this set of John readings that goes through where it says, um, 12, 1 to 7, so the first one that is from John 6, and then the one that goes 12, 1 to 7. I want you to read those at your table and just talk about it. Talk about what, uh, what those passages tell us about the Judas story. Everybody got it? So there's no specific question, it's just how does this feel as part of the story given what we've already experienced? Just do Bible study on these two passages that John has, all right?